morning, church. Hope you are well this morning. Uh, grateful, uh, Billy, for uh, your prayers this morning and for uh, sharing our text. Uh, I'm laughing a little bit. Last, last week when I stood up here, I mean, you guys can't see this, but there's an X on the ground uh, because I'm uh, slow. And so the X communicates to me, uh, James, stand here. So the pulpit kind of gets put in the right spot. And last week, I was over here, and I wanted so desperately to kind of be over here. But there's no easy way to move this. It's just loud and clunky, you know. And I was thinking this morning as I was uh, watching the young men bring the pulpit up, I was thinking, you know, uh, a lot of times in life, God gives us an X to stand on. And he goes, this is, this is kind of like your, another way of looking at it is like, this is your lane. Like, this is where I want you to be. Just, just stand on the X and stay uh, in, in your lane. And so I was thinking about this this morning where I was watching the guys, like, bring it out. And I was just thinking, like, James, just stand on the X. Just stand on the X. Stay in your lane. And so that's what I want to try to do this morning. I want to stand on the X. I want to stay in my lane. I want to make three observations from this text. I want to share them with you up front, and then I want to walk through them this morning. Three observations. Uh, the first one is that uh, John the Baptist was crystal clear about who he was not. Did you notice that? John the Baptist was crystal clear about who he was not. Uh, John the Baptist was crystal clear about who he was. In other words, John the Baptist was crystal clear about his purpose on the face of the earth. Uh, but more importantly, and most importantly, uh, John the Baptist was crystal clear about who Jesus is. Right? And so I want us to, to think together about those three things this morning, about knowing who you're not, about knowing who you are, and most importantly, uh, knowing who Jesus is. Uh, ancient Israel had a rich history of prophets coming and declaring a message to the people. We see this all throughout uh, the Old Testament. But by the time that John the Baptist rolled onto the scene, uh, things were relatively quiet. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were quiet for roughly 400 years uh, before a new and unusual prophet uh, came rolling into town. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the Bible, I lose sight of the fact that people oftentimes waited a long time uh, for God to move and act. Like, we read the story, and we get to Malachi at the end of the Old Testament, and if we really want to, we can just turn one more page, and voila, there is Jesus. But it wasn't the case back in the day. Uh, back in the day, uh, they were waiting and waiting and waiting. I think all of us have an internal impatience clock uh, in our souls where we'll wait for a little while. But then we're out. I don't know if you've ever tried to get onto a website before and had to wait, I don't know, a really long time, like two or three seconds, and you're like, I'm out. I, something's wrong with this. This isn't working. Maybe you've been at the grocery store and, and you have a few items and you look in front of you and there's people with two full carts, no other lane is open, and you're like, I ain't got time for this. You want to get out of there. Maybe you're stuck in traffic and you're looking at your clock and you're, like, in your mind, you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to be like two or three minutes late. I'm done with this. 
Right? There's just something in our soul sometimes where if we have to wait for an extended period of time, we get relatively impatient and we want to tap out. Well, these folks were waiting for 400 years uh, for the God of the universe to come and to say something. Well, he did. And he did it through uh, the life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a strange and bizarre figure uh, that had come from the desert. Uh, The desert is the traditional meeting place between God and a prophet. That's where John the Baptist had come from. Uh, He began a radical prophetic ministry. In a very short amount of time, uh, John the Baptist uh, started to gain a little bit of a following. People at least had heard of him or maybe knew who he was. Uh, John came with with an unusual or at least a particular message. Matthew chapter 3, uh, verse 2, shares John's message with the reader. John simply said to the people, repent. Now we hear that message, or at least I hear that message, and my mind may uh, go to a strange, relatively strange individual downtown, maybe in the city, with a sandwich board, yelling at people as they walk by seems to be a relatively unfruitful ministry, but uh, it's something that they do. I kind of look at it and go, that's a bit odd or a little strange, or I don't know if that really works. But I also think about John the Baptist and wonder if he wouldn't be the guy with the sandwich board, right? He's, He's shouting to the people the message, repent, Why? Well, because John the Baptist's ministry was one of preparation. He was preparing the people uh, for Jesus to come. And John the Baptist was crystal clear about who he was not. John chapter 1 verse 19 reads, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So John begins with an acknowledgement that he is not the savior of the world. I am not the Christ, said John the Baptist. John knew that his role in the world was not to save the world. He wasn't the glue that kept the world Together, It wasn't his responsibility to change human hearts. Now, you might hear that. You might hear his response and think to yourself, well, that's, I mean, that's a good first step to admit that you're not Jesus, to admit that you're not the Savior of the world. Uh, And yet, oftentimes, you and I can be tempted uh, to function as if we are. We, we function sometimes in such a way that we believe we're calling the shots, or at least we want to. We want to orchestrate and organize our lives and the lives of others in such a way that the pieces of life kind of fit together and things play out the way that we want them to. This shouldn't surprise us. This is actually something that humanity has been doing since the fall. 
Remember the conversation that the serpent has with with Eve in Genesis uh, chapter 3, when the serpent said to Eve, uh, if you eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Uh, It seems as if there is a temptation for us uh, to be like God nearly on a daily basis. We battle for control. We want to reject our own limitations. We long to call the shots. We seek uh, to write the the narrative of our own lives. We go out of our way to control the court of public opinion. Uh, We thirst for power or prosperity or for significance. Parents, I am one, can be tempted to view their role as one of savior in the life of their son or daughter and not their mom or dad. In marriage relationships, a spouse can view their husband or their wife more as a functional savior than someone who has been given by God in their life to form and shape Jesus in their heart. Pastors like myself or ministry leaders, can mistakenly believe that our service is so needed and necessary that the church would crumble without us. John's words bring clarity to the inquisitive priests and Levites, but they also serve as words of freedom for those of us who are tempted to overestimate our role in God's plan. Uh, We are sons, uh, but we are not the Savior. We may be uh, daughters, uh, but we are not deity. Author Zach Eswine, in his wonderful little book, Sensing Jesus, Life in Ministry as a Human Being, writes of the need to recover our humanity and to know our place in God's story. He writes, it was John the Baptist who said, I am not the Christ, he declared, It seems to me that while it is true, we can dangerously make too little of God by drawing improper attention to ourselves. It is equally true that we cannot fully magnify God without confessing that we are not him. A man, John said, can receive only what is given him from heaven. Eswine writes, each of us is, is not God and is only human. I am not the Christ. The absence of such a confession is making us a ragged bunch. I wonder sometimes if others do not perceive us as a ragged bunch because we are trying to play a role that was not assigned to us. We are functionally... Uh, trying to act as if God has called us to be the savior of of the world, of someone's world, uh, when that is not a role he has given to us. Uh, John the Baptist uh, knew this. John the Baptist knew this. His words, I am not the Christ, isn't only a declaration for a somewhat eccentric prophet, but for you and for me too. Look at verse 19 again. It says, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. 
And they said to him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Having heard John deny that he was the Messiah, the priest and the Levites of the Jewish delegation throw out another option. Well, if you're not the savior of the world, if you're not the Messiah, then who are you? Are you the great prophet Elijah? Now, why did they ask this rather strange question? Well, the last prophet of the Old Testament was Malachi, and in the last chapter of the book of Malachi, in the very last paragraph of the book of Malachi, it is recorded, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Perhaps this delegation was connecting the dots in their minds, thinking to themselves, uh, if this guy is Elijah, that means the coming of the day of the Lord is at hand. And when you read of the coming of the day of the Lord in Scripture, it can be at times a frightful event. And so the, the people still are struggling uh, to to find the identity of who really is a John the Baptist. John's reply, once again, was clear. I am not. He's very straightforward. He said, if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah uh, who is uh, to come. With that uh, cryptic introduction, if you're willing to receive it, Jesus indicated that John was Elijah in a sense. His ministry was going to function as one who was a prophet, but he was not the prophet Elijah. Or John the Baptist was clear, I am not, I am not Elijah. And then John the Baptist is also going to admit that he is not the prophet. The priests and the Levites asked, are you the prophet? Verse 21. Notice the question was not, are you a prophet? Rather, it was, are you the prophet? Uh, What they essentially were asking John the Baptist was, are you going to function like Moses functioned in the Old Testament? Are you going to have that kind of role? It says in Deuteronomy of Moses, I will raise up for the Israelites a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to all of them all that I command." So for centuries, the Jewish people had been waiting not just for the return of Elijah, but the arrival of this special prophet who would be like Moses. And Moses' ministry, you may recall, was unique. He was not just a prophet, but he was the mediator of the Old Testament. So a prophet like Moses would be a prophet who would mediate He would be the mediator of the New Testament, the Messiah. And so when the delegation asked John the Baptist, are you that guy? Are you the prophet? John the Baptist rightly answers and says, "Uh, no. No, that's not me. Isn't it interesting that John the Baptist, although he had a significant role in uh, the story of God, knew what his role was and he knew who he wasn't. He knew he was not the Messiah. He knew that he was not Elijah. Uh, He knew that he uh, was not the prophet like Moses. You know, it's interesting as we think about this text together this morning, I think uh, oftentimes there is great freedom in life in knowing who you are not. 
I don't know about you, but I personally can spend a lot of think time uh, wishing, hoping, or desiring uh, to be someone I'm not. Sometimes the temptation is to do this in very small ways. You know, sometimes we think to ourselves, I I wish I I looked a little different than I do. Maybe you think, "I, I wish I was taller or I wish I was a little shorter. I, I, I wish I had a longer hair, or I wish I had hair. I, I wish I was a little more intelligent, or I wish I was a better leader. I wish I was a better counselor. I wish I was better with people. I wish, I wish, I wish. Now, we can spend a lot of time in life wrestling with and wrestling through a who we are not. And oftentimes, we lament that we're not the person that we wish we were. But the flip side of that is there is great freedom in knowing who you are not. There is great freedom in knowing that you do not have to live your days pretending to be someone that God has not called you to be. You don't have to step out into the public and make sure you have your mask on because you want to portray yourself in a certain light. God has set you free and has set me free from that. There is great freedom in knowing who you are not. And John the Baptist knew who he was not. But John the Baptist also knew uh, who he was. In some ways, this is an identity question, at least that in our day and age, is how uh, we would phrase it or couch it. John the Baptist knew his role, right? He knew his role, and this can be freeing as well, to know that you were put on planet Earth uh, for one purpose, for one thing. Uh, John the Baptist knew his one job. You ever see the, the memes before on social media that simply say, you had one job? Right, that, that phrase, some people think the first time it was spoken, believe it or not, was in the, the movie Ocean's Eleven, where one of uh, the criminals, Basher, breaks into the safe, and a couple guys are with him, and there's an explosion. He steps in, he thinks that he's kind of you know, in the clear, and then all of a sudden he hears the alarm, and he looks to his fellow criminals and says, you had one job to do. In other words, your job was to turn off the alarm. Nothing more, nothing less. You had one job. I saw a picture recently of a little coin machine, like a bubble gum machine, where you, you put in a little you know, penny or quarter and you turn it and you get candy out. The only thing is the person who was responsible for putting in the candy didn't take the candy out of the wrapping. So there were just boxes of, like, of candy actually in the gumball machine. Underneath it, it simply read, you had one job. Uh, There was a picture of a country road with a yellow line down the middle, and it was going straight, and then all of a sudden, you see this squiggly line going back and forth with a phrase, you had one job. You had one job is this recognition or this realization that there's just one purpose. You're called to just do one thing. I couldn't help but think that when I read John the Baptist's story. It seemed like he knew his one thing. Because right? when the delegation asked him, hey, are you, 
Are you the Messiah? Are you Jesus? Are you the Savior of the world? Are you Elijah? Are, are you the prophet? He's like, nope, it's not me. That's not me. I'm not that guy. And so who is John? He says in verse 22, they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John the Baptist's one job in life was to prepare the way for Jesus, was simply to point other people to him. When Jesus began his public ministry, after his temptation in the wilderness, he went to his hometown of Nazareth and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Do you remember the story? While he was there, he was asked to read from the scroll for that day, which happened to be from the prophet Isaiah. I mean, just the thought of that is kind of cool. You know, like, we have a guest reader today. Jesus shows up opens the skull of Isaiah chapter 61 and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord. After reading the passage, Jesus was invited to give a sermon on the text. It was probably the shortest sermon ever given. Jesus said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It may be the first drop-the-mic moment in all of scripture. Jesus is essentially saying to the people that that just happened. John the Baptist, in introducing himself, is quoting not from Isaiah chapter 61, but from Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. There is this promise by God that a messenger would come to prepare the people for the coming of the Savior of the world. Make straight of the road for our high king. That was John's message. That was his one job. That is why he lived. God promised that one day a king would come and his people would see him. Some would reject him. Others would receive him. But John the Baptist was to prepare the way. His whole ministry was a ministry of preparation. Get ready, said John. Get ready. You know, sometimes in life it's easy to experience the event, the thing, and lose sight of all the preparation that goes into it. Like we celebrate the wedding ceremony, but if you ask most brides, they will tell you there's a little preparation that goes into that thing. That didn't just happen. Recently, I was thinking about all the preparation that goes into the Olympics. I don't know why I thought about this, but I was thinking about the idea of preparation. And I thought, well, I wonder, like, I wonder what goes into you know, to planning for the Olympics. And so I did a little bit of research, and I found uh, that it costs somewhere between 50 and $100 million. 
not to pull off the Olympics, but just to present your case for why your city should host the Olympics. 50 to 100 million dollars. Uh, most cities will spend somewhere between 5 and 50 billion dollars for the coming of the Olympic Games. They build stadiums and infrastructure, roads and living quarters, all uh, so that they, the city, might be ready uh, for the out-of-town guest. Well, John the Baptist's ministry was one of preparation. He wasn't he wasn't preparing infrastructure for the coming of Jesus. He was being used by God to prepare human hearts. Uh, there is someone who has been promised. He is coming. He is on his way. Now, John knew, John the Baptist knew who he wasn't. He knew that he was not the savior of the world. He knew that he was not Elijah. He knew that uh, he was not the uh, prophet, but he did know who he was. He understood the ministry that God had called him to, and the ministry that God had called him to was to point other people to Jesus, to prepare the way uh, for Jesus. Not only did John know who he wasn't, and not only did he realize who he was, but perhaps most importantly, uh, John the Baptist knew uh, who is Jesus. Verse 29 of John chapter 1 says, The next day he saw Jesus uh, coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. The words of John the Baptist are so significant when he, when he looks at Jesus and he simply says, Behold, uh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who is Jesus? According to John, Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, Author Matt Carter notes that this account took place just days before the annual Passover celebration that's spoken of in John chapter 2. The focus of the Passover celebration, of course, uh, was the sacrifice of the lamb. And the sacrifice of a lamb was a reminder of God's deliverance of Israel from the captivity in Egypt. Exodus chapter 12 in the Old Testament records the first Passover uh, when God's people were commanded to sacrifice a lamb, to kill the lamb, to wipe the blood on the doorpost of their home, and God was going uh, to send death to every home except those with blood on the doorpost. Those homes would be literally passed over. As the Jews congregated in Jerusalem each year to remember this work of God, each family would bring a lamb as a sacrifice uh, to the temple. But lambs weren't just sacrificed on that particular day. Every day, two lambs were killed at the temple, uh, one in the morning and one in the evening. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, uh, would have known this. He would have known this. He would have experienced this. When he came home from work at the end of the day, it was likely uh, that, John, uh, that John's father, John the Baptist's father, had uh, blood-stained clothes uh, from offering the sacrifice. The sacrifice, although it sounds brutal or even archaic 
uh, to us was necessary because of the significance of sin. Uh, sin is a big deal. It's a big deal. It is not small or insignificant. God is holy, and it is right, and he is righteous. And when we sin against him, it demands payment. And the payment in the Old Testament and the New was a sacrifice of blood. But here, when John the Baptist sees Jesus and points other people to him, he is saying that Jesus is the lamb. He is a sacrificial a lamb. He, Jesus, is paying the penalty for your sins and for mine. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. When John the Baptist says, like, look, the lamb, he is referring to Jesus as our sacrifice. He is also pointing out that Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is our substitute. Think about it. Who was responsible uh, to bring the sacrifice for sin to the temple? Like who, who brought the sacrifice? Who, who, would, who would bring the lamb to the temple uh, to be sacrificed as a sin offering? People would. Right? The, the sinner would bring the sacrifice. Like they were responsible for providing the sacrifice in that moment. But John the Baptist is looking to Jesus and saying, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He's saying that Jesus, Jesus is our substitute. He's our sacrifice and he is our substitute. And he's the substitute that God has provided for us, not you, and not me. We don't earn our way to God. We don't give God the best of what we have in hopes that we will appease him or please him, as if we're saying to him, like, look, Lord, look what I have for you. No, the sacrifice that was needed and necessary was provided by another. God the Father provided God the Son. Jesus is our substitute. The Lamb died for sin in our place, but not ours alone. The provision of the lamb also points to the sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus was our, our sacrifice. He was our substitute, but Jesus is also sufficient. Behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. John's declaration was not one of universalism, John the Baptist wasn't saying to the people, hey, we're all good. He wasn't saying that. Scripture says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Uh, this means that when John says, behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, he doesn't mean that every person in the world is saved. He means that every person in the world, Jew or Gentile, will be saved if they believe in Jesus, if they trust in Jesus. Right? If they trust in Jesus, then the penalty of their sin has been taken away by the Lamb. God's wrath has been removed. Right? And this, this offer 
is uh, to all. There is no race, no nationality, no ethnicity, no socioeconomic status that is excluded. Right? The, the doors have been opened uh, by the work of Jesus to those who will trust in Jesus. Um, that is good news for the PhD. It's good news uh, for the GED. It's good news for the rich, and it's good news for the poor. It is great news for the powerful, and it's great news for the powerless. It's good that Jesus came for the suburbanite, the city dweller, and the country man or woman. He came for the American, for the European, for the Asian, and for the African. Right? To all who come and trust in Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for them. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right uh, to become children of God. Jesus is our sacrifice. He is our substitute. He is sufficient. And Jesus is superior. Verse 29 says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me before he was, uh, because he was before me. John lived his short life knowing who he wasn't, understanding who he was, but most importantly, knowing who Jesus is John came to the scene like a whirlwind, right? He fulfilled his purpose in life. He fulfilled his purpose in life. He knew who Jesus was, and he knew who he wasn't. Uh, he said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John the Baptist is saying, whatever, whatever work a servant or a slave would do for their master, like, I'm not even worthy to do that to Jesus. He is so much greater than me. Like, I exist for him. I am unworthy to untie uh, his sandal. He said, this is he whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. What a powerful witness and testimony by John. Sometimes I wonder if in our culture, particularly in our American culture or the culture of the West, we talk a lot about living a purpose-driven life, about living a life of consequence, about living a life that makes a true difference, that may, that live, that to live a life that really changes the world. I wonder... I just wonder, I'm not saying all of those things are bad, but I wonder if we end up tempted to play the lead role in a story that is written uh, to revolve around another. Like Jesus is and always is, always has been the point of the story. We will quickly be forgotten quickly be forgotten. I don't, <laughs> that may sound discouraging. I don't mean it to, but, but it's true. Like we, we share a role in God's story, but it's God's story. Um, life is about Jesus. And believe it or not, when we know that and when we feel it, there is massive freedom. Like you don't have to feel the pressure to change the world. 
Like, love God and love your neighbor and point other people uh, to him. The other day, there was a healthy debate uh, at the dinner table. We had completed dinner, and the kids were at the table, at least uh, some group of them were at the table, and they were, they were debating what game they wanted to play. And you know, I was getting a little later and a little tired, and the kids are, you know, let's play this game, let's play this game. And I, like as a parent, I, there are certain games where, like for instance, when your kid goes, like, let's play Monopoly. You're like, I got to go to bed in four hours. I don't think we should play that game. And you're like, how about Uno? And so there's certain games that like, take a really long time, and there's certain games that are relatively, you know, they're a little quicker. And so, that, you know, the kids are at the table, they're talking about what game to play. And I laugh because I, I look up, and, and Melissa was kind of at the table, and she just, she got up, and her, her like, kitchen table's over here, and this is what she did. Right, and they're, they're like debating and they're arguing and they're kind of fussing and she's just like. And then she walked over, like if you kind of like walk along, there's a, there's a bar in the kitchen and then there's this wall and she just kind of walked like this and then she tucked behind the wall like so the kids couldn't see her anymore. And I just thought like as she was doing that, I just thought, you know, like what, and this is going to sound strange, but I thought, you know, that's kind of a cool metaphor for life. You know, like we, like we do our thing. Like we, I mean, God's, God's given us days to enjoy and to, to work hard and to live for him. But, but, but eventually, like we just, we just sort of exit, like stage right or stage left. We like sort of slowly back away. But Jesus remains. Like it's, like it's his deal. And John, John, seemed to, John the Baptist seemed to know this. Like in a, in a unique and God-given way. He just was like, not my deal. And I, I want us as a church to feel the freedom uh, to live that kind of way. Uh, as we point other people to Jesus, uh, the true Savior of the world. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for, for King Jesus, our sacrifice, our substitute, our sufficient Savior, the all-superior one. Jesus, we give you praise. We honor you and we glorify your good name. God, thank you so much for, uh, for human beings, for, for godly men, for godly women who you send along the way that you use to point other people to you. Thank you that you've invited us um, to, to be a part of that good work. What a joy and privilege it is. Lord, help us to remember who we are, who we're not. Help us to remember, most of all, uh, who Jesus is, our Savior and our King. God, we love you. We thank you so much that you loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your Spirit. Amen.